Hey, how are you? It's good to have you uh, in worship this morning. Uh, Jesus is the light, not a light, of the world. He's the only religious light. And we're going to talk more about that this morning. I have a couple of announcements uh, that Danita did not talk about, uh, which you need to know about them. They are amazing announcements. Uh, it's basic, basically information. Uh, they're, they're wins that our church uh, accomplished this week through your uh, service and through your sacrifice. Uh, and there's three of them. Uh, number one, we had an LCAC food drive. Uh, Josh Harper and the Next Generation students uh, at our church collected 343 food boxes that totaled $21,000. And an additional $8,000 were given in gift cards. That's, um, that's mind-boggling. So way to go, guys. Then the 25th uh, project uh, with Jay Harriet uh, and Mr. Reardon. Uh, this uh, helps the homeless uh, in our area. Uh, and uh, at Christmas and at Thanksgiving, they collect uh, meals and food. Uh, this year, they prepared 1,724 meals for the homeless uh, with the help of 274 volunteers. They serve nine shelters plus people in tent cities, et cetera, uh, in, around our area. Uh, and I think those 274 people were in our little kitchen back here. So uh, <laughs> that was a miracle in and of itself. So way to go, uh, Harriet uh, and your team. Uh, taking uh, that many meals. I think that was a major record, if I remember correctly. So way to go. And then uh, Chris Markovich uh, and BCC volunteers collected 2,800 Christmas shoe boxes uh, for worldwide distribution to underprivileged children. That's amazing. We have 2,500 people at our church. We collected 2,800. Some of you went over the top, I guess, right? <laughs> And got excited. So that, that's awesome. So way to go, church, uh, in reaching around the world to help people. Uh, two other announcements. Uh, on Monday, my mother moved here. Uh, so she is now here from California. She lived there 80 years. Now she's here. I just told her her age, but she's not here, so we can tell you that. Uh, she'll be here at the next service. Uh, so she flew into Baltimore at 730. We picked her up. What a wonderful drive that was up to Baltimore. Um, it took about two and a half hours to get up there. But it was awesome getting her, and she's been here all week waiting to move in this Tuesday to her new apartment in Burt Cove Landing, by the way, if you know where that is. Uh, she'll be near my house. So my mom landed at 7.30, and at 10 o'clock Monday night, Liz's mom passed away. So we had these two great moments of joy and then great sadness. Uh, but her, her mom was suffering greatly, as we all know, so God was gracious uh, and so we'll probably do the service around March. They cremated her this week. And uh, so a lot of uh, the family said we need to just wait because Marty's busy at Christmas. And so we'll wait. So anyway, thanks for all your prayers over the years uh, uh, for her. Uh, and now we have to take care of her stepfather who's in dementia care. So uh, which is what you have to do as children is take care of your family. So anyway, good to have you in God's house. Did we pray yet? No. I got up at three o'clock this morning. <laughs> I just woke up. I'm just up. I'm like, so no telling what I'm going to talk about today. Let's pray. And be gracious, okay? Be gracious. Uh, God, thank you for today. And may the uh, words that we speak today uh, be profound and echo in eternity. Uh, may people who don't know you come to terms with the Christ. Uh, and may we who know you uh, be so motivated at who he is that we cannot help but share that with those that we come in contact with this Christmas season. Amen to that. Uh, one of the things I love about Christmas are, uh, I love uh, the old Christmas carols. Um, and as a, as, a, as a pianist, I love to play them uh, just for my own personal worship. 
Uh, and they, they always take me back, you know, I, I, whatever. Remember when you used to actually Christmas carol as a society? Uh, but we stopped doing that in California because uh, we offended too many people. They just couldn't handle Christmas carols. So we got yelled at so many times, it was unbelievable. So we did it for years. But uh, we used to walk and do Christmas caroling when I was in college. And those old songs take me back to that. Um, it takes me back to great times of worship uh, in church when I was growing up, listening to all those old songs. Do you like them? I like them. Uh, so I, I know, I think, all of them because uh, I play them uh, on the piano. Uh, one, one that I really like is it's from the 16th century. Uh, and it asks the question. And the question is this. And it, to me, this, oh, by the way, I'm not doing Romans. You're like, what in the world? He's freaking me out. What's he talking about? Yeah, uh, I'm not doing Romans for the next four weeks because it's Christmas. So we're going to stop and do a Christmas series called The Christ of Christmas. So if you're here for Romans, you're probably hyperventilating right now. So just, <laughs> we'll get back to it in January. So uh, the, the song that I like is, what child is this? What child is this? Because that is the question of all questions that every one of us that walk the planet have to come to terms with. Who was he? The song goes like this. And I'm not singing, so don't freak out. Uh, what child is this uh, who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? Who is that? It then says, whom angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds watch are keeping. Who was that little baby? Who was that little baby? Uh, that is the question. Uh, and really, the way you answer that question is you look at what, what that baby said about himself when he grew up. Who did he say he was? Well, who did he say he was? And so last Christmas, uh, we had the same uh, picture that we used, the Christ of Christmas. So if you're thinking, that's a retread from last Christmas, yes, it is. Uh, God can use retreads, can he not? Uh, and last Christmas, do you remember what we talked about sermon-wise? What did we talk about? The, no, we didn't talk about the names of Christ. Okay, this is, ex no, we didn't talk about the animals. That was the year before that. Okay, I'm losing control. So last year, uh, this is really interesting. Wow. Okay. So last year we talked about, about the, the I am statements of Christ. Remember that one? Or most of you are new from last year? You weren't here? And so Jesus said many things. And there's seven I am statements of Christ in the New Testament, in the Gospels, uh, which Jesus makes. Uh, uh, in John is where you run into them. Uh, where he says, uh, let me explain who I am by I am statements. So subjects with predicates. So what does he say? So who did he say? So it's the order that we covered them last year, if you will remember. Uh, Jesus said, I am the bread of life, John chapter 6. I am the light of the world, John chapter 8. He said in John chapter 10, I am the door. Uh, and then in John 15, we closed it out right before Christmas with Jesus saying, I am the vine. This is who he says he was. But those are only four statements. And we spent two Sundays talking about Jesus as the light of the world because it's so important to understand that concept. But there's uh, other statements that Jesus made. In fact, there's three more about himself where he identifies himself, which there's no greater thing you can understand at Christmas than who is Christ? Who is he? Who did he say that he was? And so we're gonna add uh, our, in, to this three other I am statements uh, in, uh, of this uh, from John chapter 14, verse six. And then from that, then we're gonna close out at Christmas with one, I think one of the most amazing statements Christ makes in John chapter eight, verse 58, when the Pharisees want to know, how can you say that you were around before Abraham? And that's when Jesus says to them in verse eight, uh, 58 of chapter eight, well, I'm the I am, no predicate, uh, just the subject. And so if you're wondering what a subject and a predicate is, well, we'll get into that in just a minute here. We're talking grammar here at this church, do we not? How many love grammar? How many didn't like it when you were in school? 
I hated it until I understood God uses grammar, doesn't he? So let's get into the grammar. Jesus says, all these I am statements, he uses a very interesting Greek phrase that everybody that spoke Greek at the day and time, because remember, I mean, this was the culture in which they lived. Uh, they spoke Greek, they knew Hebrew, they knew Aramaic. Uh, that was just the, the world in which they lived. In fact, if you go over there today, many of them are, are you know, multilingual. I mean, it just comes with the turf. Uh, one guy told me in a shoe shop who he spoke seven languages. I asked him, how did you learn seven languages? He says, if I don't know seven languages, I don't sell shoes. You know? And so I'm like, oh, that's very pragmatic. Excellent. Um, so Jesus is going to make the statement that I am, and then he's going to fill that in in our, in our text today that we're going to look at. But I'm going to look at the familiar I am statement, just that first person verb, the copula, am, that I am. It, it's first person, I am. But when Jesus says I am, he throws a first person personal pronoun on the front of it, which means I, I am. Why is he repetitious? Because when you take a first person personal pronoun, I and wed it to a verb that has an ending for I am on it, you just made it emphatic. So he says, you wanna really know who I am? Let me leave no doubt. I'm the I am. So I've had so many people in my lifetime tell me, you know, Jesus really was not clear about who he was. He never claimed to be God. To that person, I usually say, have you read what he said? And so Jesus says, I am the I am. He's underscoring that he is uh, the God of the burning bush from the Old Testament. That's exactly what he's saying. Well, how do I know that? Because that's exactly what God said in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. So I submit to you the Hebrew and the Greek of Exodus 3, 14. Excited? Yeah. Yes, I am. And so what, what does he say? So when you read, when you read the Greek uh, over here, and, and this is, and he said, the God, and so and God said to Moses, who are you? I'm the ego me. I'm the I am. And then he throws in this participle, the one who is being. I'm in a constant state of being. I'm outside of time and space. I'm the one who created causation. I created effect. I'm not an effect. I'm the actualized one. I'm, you're actualized because I actualized you. I'm not actualized. I'm the non-contingent being. You're a contingent being. I'm the eternal one. I'm God of all time. I'm the I am. God said to Moses, when Moses said, who shall I tell Israel is here at this burning bush? What's your name? Tell him I'm a verb. A present tense verb. So if you don't like language, today's the day to convert. Okay, he's the great I am. So when Jesus makes these statements, these I am statements, every Jew understanding Hebrew and Greek totally understood. When you said you are the ego me, the I I am, that's made by God of the Old Testament. There's no doubt who he said he was. Now the difference is he, he takes the subject and he throws in a predicate when he throws in the I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the door, etc. He's telling you specifically who he is. And he's using an article, the, to make it totally definite, not indefinite. He's not saying, I am a door to God. I am a light of spiritual lights. No, he's telling you, I'm the only one. The only one. He's going to really do that in John chapter 14, verse 6. Notice what he says here as we introduce you to the other three I am statements. Jesus said to Thomas, who was kind of wondering, because Jesus just told the disciples, I'm going to go somewhere where you can't follow me. And the, the disciples are logical, guys. They're thinking to themselves, Lord, we have followed you all over Israel in, 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 in wadis, on mountaintops. I mean, we've been all over the place with you in boats, and you're going somewhere where we can't go? That, that sounds illogical. So Thomas wants to know, Lord, where are you going that we cannot go? Jesus answers the question, and many Christians have this memorized. Do you not? I mean, you should. What, what did Jesus say to Thomas? Thomas, let me clarify who I am. 
Who, who is he? He says, well, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And let me narrow it for you. No one, no one, no exceptions, gets to the Father, gets to heaven, but by means of me. Notice the preposition through. I mean, by means of him, which means if you don't come through Jesus, you don't get in. Very restrictive. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. We only want to focus uh, today on uh, concept number one, which is Jesus claiming that he is the way to God, the way. He's the only way to God. Now, our pluralistic, uh, tolerant culture, they're highly tolerant unless you defy their version of tolerance. Uh, they believe that uh, all, you know, all religions are the same. They all basically teach similar things. They're all heading the same direction, etc. But when you study religions, they're not all teaching the same thing, and they're not all uh, happy about the other religions, and they all believe they have their version of the truth, basically. Rabbi Zacharias, former Hindu, uh, wrote a book uh, I would submit to you to read sometime in your lifetime, and it's Christmas break. If you're home from college, here's a book to read. No one's saying praise God, amen. So <laughs> they're saying, I just got done with doing that. So uh, he wrote a book called Jesus Among Other Gods. Here's what he, a former Hindu uh, worshiper, says. He says, you hear it a thousand times and, uh, and more growing up in the East. What do you hear? Uh, that we all come through different routes and end up in the same place, spiritually speaking. He says, but I say unto you, God is not a place or an experience or a feeling. Pluralistic cultures are beguiled by the cosmetically courteous idea that sincerity, boy, that's big in our culture, or privilege of birth is all that counts and that truth is subject to the beholder. Translated, truth relative. In no other discipline, he says, of life can one be so naive as to claim inherited belief or insistent belief as, sole as a sole determiner of truth. You certainly wouldn't apply that to mathematics, right? I, my, my dad always taught me that, you know, two plus two is seven. I just feel it's true. You want him building your house? I'm adding to Rabbi's book. He says, then why do we make the catastrophic error of thinking that all religions are right and that it does not matter whether the claims they are making are objectively true? He then says, all religions are not the same. All religions do not point to God. All religions do not say that all religions are the same. At the heart of every, and he emphasizes that word, at the heart of uh, every uh, religion is an uncompromising commitment to a particular way of defining God who he is or is not in defining life's purpose. Now, based on him, his analysis of who God is in the gospels, like in John chapter 14, Ravi's quite convinced that Jesus is everything he says he is when he says he is the way with the article. It's definite, meaning he's the only way to God, not a way to God. So by definition, Ravi's going to say uh, religious pluralism is tenuous and erroneous at best because it defies the claims of Christ and what he has said about himself. And he also demonstrated his deity by the great miracles that he did, which we'll talk about later. So when you look at uh, what Jesus is saying here, it's really jaw-dropping. And it's really hard for a culture like ours that's really into everybody believing what they want to believe and no one judges the other person. Uh, okay, that, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus is very definitive on that he is the only true path to God. He does not leave, there's no wiggle room here. Uh, to understand Jesus' statement that he is the way, I want to understand the context first. Because you can't divorce the verse from the context. Uh, otherwise, you know, you'll, who knows where you wind up. So what we need to do is go back to chapter 13 and realize that chapter 14 takes place within the, within the uh, upper room discourse. 
the context is Jesus is about to be betrayed by Judas. Uh, and in that context of the last Passover meal, they're seated around a, a U-shaped table that's really low to the ground called the triclinium in, in Latin. Uh, and on the three sides of this table, they're, they're leaning against the table and they're eating and Jesus is teaching. And it's, it's taking hours to do this last Passover meal. And as Jesus is teaching, he's preparing his disciples for his crucifixion. He's telling them, man, let me tell you some things to prepare you for what's coming. So I want to look at them as in a structural uh, format, like in panels of movement to lead up to John chapter 14, verse 6. The question of the, the Christ answers from Thomas. In panel 1, we have this motif. Uh, John chapter 13, verses 1 to 20. Uh, this particular uh, motif is Jesus tells the disciples, in my absence, you must be servants as I'm a servant. As I washed your feet, you should wash other people's feet and, and serve them. Don't let people serve you. Be a servant to other people. So the disciples are probably thinking to themselves, okay, check. Okay, guys, can you do that? Yeah, I, I, he just washed my feet. I, 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 we know what we need to do now. And then Jesus says in panel number two, let me give you another motif uh, in verses 31, uh, 21 to 30. Uh, let me give you the fact that one of you is going to betray me. One of you is going to betray me with a kiss. They're all looking at each other like, Lord, why, why would anybody seated around like Triclinium with you at this Passover? Why would anyone betray you? I mean, you're the Lord. Fear begins to creep in. Panel three, the motif is, let me have a departure discussion. This is where he's going to tell them he's not going to be around much longer, like just one more day. And they're having a hard time processing that. Again, fear creeps in. Where, where, where's he going? What's happening? What's he talking about? Panel number four, John chapter 13, verses 36 to 38. He tells Peter, oh, and by the way, the leader of the disciples, you're going to deny me. The disciples are, how, how, how could Peter, the rock, deny you? Fear creeps in. Has God ever rocked your world through panel movements, little snapshots, and you got to that point where, okay, I can handle this one. Oh, that, oh, that one's unsettling. Ooh, that one's really off the grid. And what in the world? And fear sets in. Well, when that happens, realize there's always panel five. Panel five from a structural pers perspective is John 14, verses one to six, where Jesus says to the disciples to allay their fears, let me explain to you uh, the positive side of what's going on. Notice what he says in verse one in John chapter 14 to the disciples, to you. Hey, don't let your heart be troubled. If you believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are, in the King James, many mansions. And if it was not so, uh, I would not have told you so, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll, I'll come again and I'll receive you myself. Why? Well, that where I am, there you may be also. And, and you know the way where I'm going, don't you? You know the way. And then Thomas, who's the analytical, the analyst, says to him, uh, Lord, question? Uh, we, 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 don't, we, don't, we don't know where you're going. And, and then how do we know the way? What in the world are you talking about? Jesus tells him in John chapter 14, verse 6, Thomas, I need to clarify like who I am. I'm the way. I'm not a way. To God the Father. I'm not a way to heaven. I'm not a way to your heavenly home. I'm the only way. I'm the essence of the way. No more questions at that point. Notice what Jesus says. Notice what he doesn't say here. He does not say, I am a way. Why did, why did they put the article there? To make it definite. Now, when you take Greek, uh, one of the things that you learn to do in upper divisions of Greek is how to classify articles, the word the. And you just thought the word the is just the, right? But when you take Greek, one of the things you're paying for is to teach you how to classify an article. Isn't that exhilarating? 
I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Uh, and so in this particular classification, I personally uh, would take that word the and classify it as the monadic use of the article. What's that mean? It means it's the one and only. There's not another one like that. So if I use that word to describe the sun above my head, it means there's only one of those that warms our planet. That's the monadic use of the article. So why do you throw an article in there? To tell you there's only one way like this way, which means by definition, there is ipso facto no other ways. Now had he dropped the article out of there, totally different concept, right? This would have been pluralism. Then Jesus is saying, I am a way. Implication is of many ways. Did he say that? No. He said he is only the way. Number two, when Jesus said that he is, he, he is the way, every Hebrew speaking person sitting there, every disciple would have known immediately the concept of the udos, the way, the Greek word, because they were taught in the Old Testament scriptures that there's two ways that a person can go. Let's go to Proverbs uh, chapter 14, verse 12, which reads, there is a way which seems right to man, but the end thereof is destruction. People get in their heads that the way that I'm on is the right way, and Jesus says, if it's not me as the way, you only have one destination in that false way. It's a destruction, spiritual destruction. So the Jews understood the dualistic motif of there's two ways you can go, the right way or the wrong way. So here are the different ways in the Old Testament that every Jew listening to Jesus that day would have known. There's the righteous way versus the wicked way. Uh, there's the wise way versus the foolish way. If you have children, memorize that verse. Because your children, as they become high schoolers, think that, well, you're the foolish one and they're the wise one and you need to listen to them, correct? Anyone have children? Yes, there is the false way versus the true way. Psalm 119, verse 29. Then there's the way of, the dis of obedience to the Torah, the law of God, or the way of disobedience to the law of God. So there's these two ways. Every Hebrew listening to Jesus totally understood this. When he says, I am the udos, I am the way, he, he's telling you, if you're on the false way, you get to go on the right way. I'm the only way to God. They understood that. This is where religions get all messed up. This is where they devi deviate from truth because they start denying Jesus is the way. Consider the Quran, Surah chapter four, verse 171, where they make this claim about Jesus. Quote, Christ Jesus, the son of Mary, was no more than an apostle of God. An apostle of God. Okay, so the word apostle, apostolos in Greek means to be sent. So was Jesus sent? Yes, he was sent from heaven by the Father on a mission to, to, to redeem us. So is Jesus an apostle? Yes. But he's more than an apostle, is he not? Because what's his claim? I am the I am. I am the way. So I'm more than an apostle. He's claiming to be God in the flesh. Uh, chapter 25, verse 2 says this, quote, No God has he, God, begotten, nor has he a partner in his dominion, meaning God doesn't have a wife and produce children. So Jesus, by definition, could not be God because he is born. Therefore, since he's born, he cannot be God. Who did Jesus say that he was? I am the I am, meaning I'm outside of time and space. I created time and space. I created causation, cause and effect. Uh, I, I made all this by the word of my mouth. I was born by a virgin, but prior to that, I was who? God, God. When it says that Jesus is the only begotten son of God, it's talking about his place, his preeminence, not the fact that he's, he's this born being. He's the all-existent one. 
So when you start reading religious books, you start seeing that there's a deviation here from what Christ said. Christ said, he's the way, there's not other ways. They're detracting from Jesus and saying, well, he's not, he's not God, and he couldn't be God because he was born. Well, that's contrary to what Jesus says about himself. He says, if you want to get into heaven, you have to come through me. I am the way, not a way, because he's God. I want to show you something you might be familiar with. Um, it's a very limited access kind of box. What is that? It's a skiff. It's a skiff. It's an acronym, isn't it? It's DC. It's an acronym. Everything has an acronym, right? Yeah, I was lost in many elder meetings for years with all the acronyms that flew around. I'm like, they didn't teach me these at seminary. So, so what is a skiff? So a skiff is a sensitive, compartmentalized information facility. What are you going there for? Well, we take our breaks in there. What for? Well, if you want to like totally guard data and guard your phone calls and guard your computer data, you go in there, right? I mean, I've been in the Pentagon when you have those special rooms, like you got to leave your phone outside in the hallway. And I've been there. It's like, what do I have to leave my phone in the hallway for? Can't I go in with that? What's wrong with my phone? I'll take a couple pictures while I'm in there. <laughs> you guys are so restrictive. You know, when you're going to go in a really special place, isn't it restrictive? Don't you understand that? If anybody gets that, it's people live here. Yeah, if you want to go in a skiff, one door, one door. Why not like, why don't we have 30 access points? If you're in the intelligence world, what's the problem with 30 extra doors? I don't, I'm not even in your world. I could probably figure it out. I don't even work in that world. The more doors, what? More difficult it is to secure the facility. Right? Am I right? Okay. If you want to get into heaven, Jesus says you got to come through one door. One way, he's the way. So if it takes special access to get into a skiff to communicate with people, what must it be to get into the presence of God Almighty? What's his way? He's the way into that thing. Jesus said this much in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. What did he say? Enter through the narrow gate. Why? Well, for wide is the gate and uh, wide is the gate and the way is broad that leads to destruction. Many there are who enter into it. For the gate is small, the way is narrow that leads to life, and well, the reality is there's few people on the narrow gate. Why? Well, the narrow road's a little harder. It's more restrictive. Everybody pretty much is on the wide road to destruction. We'll talk about why they like that road here in just a minute. But the point that I want you to consider is Jesus says he's the way. And we're all born on the wrong way, the large path. It is your decision to trade paths. Wide way for the small way. One leads to death, eternal. One leads to life, eternal. How do you, how do you change roads from the large path to the small path? Uh, John chapter 8, verse 24, Jesus said this. He said, that is why I told you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that, what? I am you'll die in your sins. Now, some text in your Bibles might throw in the word he there to, to throw in the, you know, the predicate. But when you leave that out, the only person who ever said there the I am in the entire Old Testament was God. Jesus just said in John 8, 24, if you don't believe that I am the I am, the God of all time who's come to earth to die for your sins, if you don't believe in who I am, you'll die in your sins and stay on the road to destruction. But if you believe that I am the one, the Messiah, I'm the one. If you believe that, I am the way to the path of life. Let's have a simple question. Which path are you on? And if you're on the large path, well, Christmas is all about the Savior who came to get you the option to get on the small path. Last point. 
So Jesus is uh, the path to God the Father and to heaven. But there's many false paths, supposedly, to God. Uh, religious pluralism, what does it teach? Uh, Dr. Norman Geisler wrote a book uh, called The Big Book of Christian Apologetics, and it is a big book. Uh, when I was taking a doctoral class on apologetics from Dr. Geisler's son, David Geisler, whom I went to seminary with, so it's weird having one of your former peers teaching you a class. There's something wrong about that, but I was. So I was taking this class on apologetics from David Geisler, and that was one of the books we had, we had to read, or so I thought. So it's a really big book. It's probably, I don't know, six, 700 pages, two columns in each page, like 0.8 font. <laughs> I read it with my glasses and bifocals off. I couldn't even see it. So I read it, I think it was two Christmases ago. So I had 30 days to read it before class started, among other books. And so I had to read so many pages a day to read this book. It took me forever. So I read that whole book. And I got to class in January, and I went out to lunch with Dr. Geisler, David Geisler, and said, hey, how you doing? What's going on? And uh, he's, hey, how's your Christmas? It was awesome. You know, I, I, I read that, that book you told us to read. He's like, what book? Well, you know, that big book of Christian apologetics. He's like, you read it? <laughs> I go, well, he, yeah, it was in the book reading list. He said, Marty, you only had to read 30 pages. <laughs> You've got to be kidding me. So what I'm going to tell you, I really know about, because I really read it, Okay. <laughs> Yeah. You ever make mistakes like that? It's like your worst nightmare. Well, anyway, so what does Dr. Geiser say about religious pluralism? That there's many paths to God. Here's what he says. Religious pluralism is the belief that every religion is true. Each provides a genuine encounter with the ultimate. One may be better than the others, but they're all adequate. They're all true. Now, just philosophically, this could not be true because the philosophic Aristotelian concept of law and non-contradiction is the first law of all logic that if you have two opposing concepts, they cannot both be the same at the same time in the same way. It's illogical. And I've told you this before. I'll tell you again, because you probably forgot, because uh, it's been a while. But if I tell you I believe in gravity and you tell me you don't believe in gravity, all we got to do is go up to the top of the church and have a test. <laughs> You're first, you know? I'll, I'll do the hospital visitation. So you can't just say two opposing concepts are true at the same time. It's ridiculous, because Aristotle, who discovered logic, said that's impossible. So pluralism says, oh, all these religions are true. No, no they couldn't be because they're diametrically opposed to each other. One of them would have to be true. Now, some people take that pluralistic concept of religion and they, they have wedded it, as they have in India, to the concept of the elephant and the blind man. Have you seen this analogy in school? So, have you? You're so quiet this morning. Still recovering from all the food? Yeah. So here, here's a picture of the elephant. I think we have, yeah, see the elephant. So, uh, so in this particular scenario, there's different ways to analyze the story. But in this particular story, you have all these blind men and they're, uh, they're embracing the elephant. And one guy's got the tail. Another guy's got the trunk. One guy's got the body. Another guy's got a foot. And this is their zone. These are all holy men. And they're looking at the elephant. And each one's saying, this, this feels like a, like, a, like a spear. And then the guy at the back that got the tail, the tail keeps moving. Well, this feels like a fan, etc. So the point being, if these are all holy men, they have pieces of the ultimate reality, the elephant, uh, so they're not all wrong. They apply this to religion and say, this is religions. Every religion has a little piece of the elephant, uh, and so they're all true to a certain degree. I'm here to tell you today, Jesus is not an elephant. He's got nothing to do with that story. Do you hear me? Forget the elephant. Jesus says, it's not like different religious people are approaching me in different ways. He, you know, he's like, just forget the picture. Erase it. Because he said, it's not a picture of an elephant. It's a picture of a road. 
And it's one road and it's a narrow road and I'm the road. And there's not multiple people with multiple paths. I am the only path. Wrong picture. I've actually used this in talking to people trying to explain to me what, what we're looking at here and I've told them, wrong metaphor. That's not what God's talking about. He's the only way. Which leads to a question that I need to ask you based on two pictures. Well, first of all, before I get into that, I want to point out what I promised to tell you before. Why does everybody like the broad road? Because they're on it big time, going full speed. Here's some ideas of why people love the broad road to destruction. Number one, a broad road allows for more self-expression. I can be myself while I'm driving my car to oblivion. Number two, a broad road is more inclusive of anybody and everybody. A broad road is less judgmental, unless you're driving on the freeways here. A broad road is more tolerant unless you do something that doesn't accept their version of tolerance. A broad road is more broad-minded. Uh, a broad road is more accepting of how people choose to live and to think. A broad road allows for more sinful, questionable behavior. Why? I'm not going to judge you for whatever you're doing over there. A broad road embraces the party life more readily. A broad road is more flexible, morally speaking. A broad road requires less of you morally and spiritually. But Jesus says it's the broad road that leads to destruction. But when you come to him the way, you just trade a death for life. Last year at George Mason University, this brochure was passed out. The Messiah has come. I'm like, wow, did I miss him? <laughs> and so I began to read this thing and I found out that this was a splinter group within Islam, uh, a splinter group, which says that the Messiah came in 1889. His name is Mirza Ghulam Ahmad. I had no idea. Here's what it says about him. God sent Ahmad like Jesus, to reinstitute morality, justice, and peace on earth. He's divinely guided. He began an unprecedented religious revival by explaining Islam's true teachings and the true teachings of all great religious founders. Notice a pluralism. Here it comes. Such as Abraham, Moses, Jesus, Krishna, Buddha, Confucius, and Guru Nanak. He, the great Messiah, explained how these teachings converged into the true Islam and toward one God, and who is the Messiah, this guy. Oh, and his picture's in here too, if you want to see it. Are you kidding me? 1880 what? 88, 89, the Messiah came and we missed him? You know, is he the Messiah? No. No, he's not the Messiah. He's a false Messiah. But based on pluralism, he's just one of many that you can choose from. Why would I judge you for accepting that if you ardently believe it? No, Jesus said, I am the way. That guy's not the way. That's the false way. So you have two paths you can be on. I'll show them to you. One looks really familiar. I think it's taken from I-5 in California. <laughs> Is that your commute? I think that's I-5 in LA near Dodger Stadium. I lived there. I've been in that. That, that looks a lot. Both coasts look like this, don't they? But if you think about it, that's the path to destruction. <laughs> Everybody's on it, right? Head in the same direction, destruction, uh, about the same speed, some a little faster, some a little slower, but they're all going in the same direction, and it's, it's just mindless. Haven't you ever sat there and thought, why did I take this job? Why am I on this road every day, etc." See, th if you're on the road to destruction, you're not happy. When I, when I drove to Baltimore at 5.30 Monday afternoon to go pick up my mom, I had to, this picture is in my head. I mean, you're thinking to yourself, I gotta get out of here. I gotta find a faster route. But there's one bridge in front of me here. I can't, I can't get around. What am I gonna do? Etc. It's like if you're on the road to destruction, you're not happy. 
You can't find contentment there because you're headed to destruction. So what do you do in the meantime? Try to do things inside your car to kind of alleviate the fact that you can't stand where you're going. Play the music louder, have something to drink, some food bag, something to eat, some cookies, whatever. Trying to distract yourself because of where you're going. Is that your spiritual road? Or is it this one? Road two. This is atop Masada in the Dead Sea. You're about 1,200 feet up off the desert floor. Thank God for that little narrow path. Because if you come with us in February to Masada, we take the tram up to the top of this and you exit the tram and you begin to walk toward that little tiny door. See that door? How many doors are there? One. One, One door. And everybody in single file is excitedly going in that door to go see Masada. King Herod's great fortress. Amazing place to go to. I think that's a, like a metaphor of spiritual life. You're either on the broad road to destruction or by faith in Jesus, the way, you're now heading toward that little door. If you're a Christian and you're heading to that little door, how exciting is that? Because Jesus says, in my father's house or what? Many mansions. Monday night when Liz's mom passed away, I, I had talked to her last, uh, a few months ago and just said, Marinette, I just want to be real clear with you about where you're going when you die. And we had a nice, direct conversation about Jesus. And she said, I, I, I trust in Jesus as my Savior. You know? And, and she said every, she's most nights. I quote Psalm 23. I was taught that Psalm by, as a little girl. I quote it at night because it gives me peace. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. What's he do? He makes you to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me. See? And she said, I pray these things. And so when a saint dies on the narrow path, they walk through the little door into eternal bliss. You on that path and give God praise and invite other people to get on the right path. And if you're on the wrong path this Christmas, God is most gracious. He's calling you to come to him the way. And he, by faith, he will move you from the path of death to the path of life. Let's pray. God, thank you for who you are. You challenge our thinking. Uh, your spirit convicts us of our sin. You bring comfort when we need comfort. You bring peace when we need peace. To the soul that struggles with the road they're on today, help them to come to terms to find true peace in the inner being, which only comes from you, the way to life. And we who know you, might we be so full of joy and excitement that we're on the way that leads to your presence. Might we tell everyone that we come in contact with this Christmas who you are. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful afternoon with your families.